This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Michael Robotham, welcome again to Better Reading. It's always a pleasure to be here, Cheryl. So do you think this is our number three podcast? Oh, I lost count. <laughs> you lost count. You lost count. Okay, I think it is number three. Um, Michael is the number one best-selling author of thrillers, including The Suspect, The Secret She Keeps, and Good Girl, Bad Girl. The Secret She Keeps was adapted for TV by Network 10 and the BBC, which I saw and loved. Um, Michael is the only Australian to twice win the UK's prestigious Gold Dagger Award for Best Crime Novel for Life or Death, Good Girl, Bad Girl, as well as the Ian Fleming Steel Dagger for When She Was Good. Michael's here to talk about his brand new novel, Lying Beside You. It's the third instalment in his best-selling Cyrus Haven and Evie Cormac series. I love those two characters. I want to go back and tell you this. I was in San Francisco earlier this year and I came across your first book. Maybe it was at a second-hand bookstore or something, uh, which I had read. <laughs> and I bought it and read it again. God, I enjoyed it. What was it called? The Suspect. Yeah. It would have been. Yeah. Yeah. And Loved it. Uh, so it was our first introduction to... Joe O'Loughlin. Joe O'Loughlin. And that's just been just been made into a five-part TV series in the UK. I did not know that. Yes. Congratulations. It's, uh, it's, oh, I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, it stars uh, Aidan Turner, yeah. who is very handsome. He's best known as the handsome dwarf in the Hobbit movies. And also he was Ross Poldark in the remake of Poldark. Ah, uh, right. And it was made, it's been made by World Productions, who gave us uh, The Bodyguard and Line of Duty and Vigil. And <gasps> of the which Bletchley I've Circle. seen all of those. Yes, and it's due to go to air in the UK in September. And this I'm, year? Yeah, this year, and I'm waiting to hear where it will air in Australia. Well, do you know I'm going to be in the UK in September? As am I. <laughs> yeah, so we'll get to see it over there. We will. How does that feel when that happens? Because, you know, that is I, I didn't know that. I don't know why I missed that piece of news. I don't know if it's been announced before now. But when I was reading The Suspect in San Francisco, I did think, why hasn't this been made into a TV series? And Well, I mean, it's, it's odd because when that book, sold on a part manuscript um, at the London Book Fair, triggered a bidding war in 2002, and the BBC bought the rights in 2002. And if I tell you, since then, it has passed through the hands of four or five, you know, major production companies, all of whom were desperately keen to bring Joe O'Loughlin to the small screen or the big screen, and it always just that the script wasn't right or, you know, the 
right actor wasn't there or whatever. And, and it's taken until now, it's taken 20 years basically for it to be made. And they're now working on, uh, it's being shown on ITV and you can, they're now working on the second series. So oh, who knows, Joe Lockler may, may continue to have a whole new career mm. on, on screen, but it's taken a long while. Mm. And how do you feel about that? Because um, do you leave books behind? Yeah, no, look, I, it's odd, isn't it? Because, you know, apart from the Germans having made, the Germans have made about seven films out of the Joe Lachlan books. And then when The Secret She Keeps was made uh, a year or two ago, that was actually, you know, the first time all my stuff had been optioned, the first time something had been made. And that was incredibly quick from the moment that was sort of commissioned to going to air. It was less than two years, which is sort of incredibly fast and, and that's the other little bit of news there's a second series of the secret she keeps that comes out wow. next month or if not the month after we haven't got a release date yet right but um that was so successful particularly internationally mm-hmm. and, and for network 10 here mm-hmm. that they've commissioned a, a second series um series of that but how does it feel it's to me it's sort of a bonus i mean to me it doesn't take away from the book. Some writers are terrified that it'll be terrible and and I look at it and think, well, even if someone makes a terrible TV series, it doesn't detract from the quality of the book mm. and, uh, and of course I'd love it to be great, always good. Of course. Yeah. yeah, because that's a really good point actually because if I watch something terrible, I don't... My assumption is always that the book is going to be good or better than the terrible. So it doesn't in a way, does it? Yeah. I, I, rarely have I have I ever watched a TV series and not and said to myself, there's no way I would go and pick up that book because mm. invariably, you know, invariably I would always imagine the source material must have been strong. It was just mm. badly put together. And, and look, we all know how that can work with, you know, oh. uh, even... You know, when I look at the second series, The Secret She Keeps, when you look at, you know, COVID delays and actors being available and then not available and that delaying it and having babies and, and you, and you realise all the things that have to get, fall into place to get it made, mm-hmm. that, um, you know, for all that magic to happen all at once is actually, when it's uncommonly good, it's a big, big bonus. Mm-hmm. It is, isn't it? Do you get involved in any of production? Do you... Outside of being a producer, I guess. No, not right? even a producer, but with well, obviously, with the first series, it was based on the secret she keeps, and I helped storyboard that. Mm-hmm. And the second series didn't have a novel associated with it, so mm. I've sat down with some brilliant writers, uh, including head writer Sarah Waters, mm-hmm. and um, Sarah Walls, and we storyboarded out, we came up with an idea mm-hmm. that we thought could make a second series with the same characters. And I dabbled in this one. I have written a script for one of the episodes on on, uh, on the new series. Oh, you have? Um, although, I could tell you now, Cheryl, I've decided the one thing this has taught me is I love being a writer of fiction because when you write fiction, I'm God. Yeah. You know, I, I ultimately, I, I decide, you yeah. know, what goes in and out and, and editors can make suggestions, but I can ignore them or I can accept them. But when you write for TV or film, you get producer notes, director notes, network notes, you know, um, distributor notes, actor notes, and you have all of these people are putting their, their fingers in the pie. Yeah. And, um, 
And at times you think, I mean, I, I don't play well Who's with it. Who's the writer yeah. here? I don't, I, it's maybe, maybe I just don't play, play well with others. I just like being a loner. Yeah. You would have had that experience as a journalist in a way, though, wouldn't you? Because editors yeah, edit. And, yeah, and I guess yeah. as a journalist, though, I mean, the great badge for me as a, as a feature writer was if I could have a piece that went through untouched, it would be – it was – the ultimate, because you know, you accept the fact that you know you need a sub editor because sometimes you've written a thousand words and they only need eight hundred, yes. and you're not around to cut it back, so they have to do it for you. And Peter Temple and I, the great late great Peter Temple, and I used to argue about this because he was obviously a sub editor, and as a, as a writer, I thought all sub editors were butchers, yeah. and as a sub editor, he thought he thought all journalists couldn't write. Yeah, <laughs> yeah of course, <laughs> of course. Um, going back to script writing. So I've got no facts behind this at all. It's just a gut feeling. I often find if an author is writing, it's more movies, film, than it is TV. If the author has been too involved in it, it's not as good as it could have been. Because it's not their experience. Yeah, I think it's one of those interesting... I I remember thinking with the first series of The Secret She Keeps that when I was in the writer's room, that they were all intimidated by having the author there. And I kept saying to them, look, if you want to change something, if you want to alter this, I accept that this is a different medium. Hmm? You're dealing in screen. Different storytelling. You you know, you you don't have to stick as closely to the book as you are Mm. because they stuck incredibly closely to the book there. The thing I find most difficult, and I think where I think writers, authors fall into, I mean, I love dialogue and I want to include lots of dialogue, whereas a lot of directors... They want to see if they can tell the story with as few words as possible. Mm. So they want to take out mm. as much dialogue as they can and just let the pictures tell mm. the story. Whereas, you know, as a writer, I want the words and dialogue mm. to reveal character. And uh, and that's, I think, the... I mean, my scripts tended to be a little sort of wordy and I wanted the banter, the back and forth between people, whereas... And, and I felt as though because they cut use it. they use the mood, they use the camera, they use so many tools yeah. for storytelling, don't they? Yeah, and it's very true that um, you know it's like when I first saw one of my books on screen, it was in Germany, and I was the only person in this huge audience in a you know in a sort of world premiere who couldn't understand a word of what was going on. Oh, so there were no subtitles. No subtitles. It was all in German. <laughs> um, but I had seen a subtitled version was sent to me and I remember thinking, they've lost all the humour here. I, I, I tend to like having sort of yes. humour in the books. And But sitting in that cinema in Germany, I heard all the laughter. Yeah. And what was happening is... The translation it was the it, The translation wasn't there also. I'm too busy reading the translation and not seeing the actors' faces and often it's the actor. It's not the words, it's the yeah. way they deliver the words yeah. that gets the laugh. Although I've got to say, I am so hooked on Nordic crime on SBS and reading subtitles. You know, yeah. if I don't have to read subtitles now, I think, oh, that, what am I watching? It's funny. I think my because my hearing's going, I have subtitles on everything, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, just because I don't want, don't want to miss it. It is, but I think I do realise, and it was only when I saw this, that at times when you're reading the subtitles, you're not looking yes. as closely at I the actors' faces. I thought about that. You're right. You know, and, yeah. and it's that little aside, that little glance, the way it's delivered that tells you so much. Yeah. During COVID, I thought I'd take up something like crafty, um, 
because I don't do anything crafty other than baking, which is not crafty. So I thought, you know, I'm going to do knitting because my mother was a really good knitter. And I thought, yeah, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to take my hand at knitting. But you can't knit and watch subtitles at the same time. Oh, no, definitely no. not. Unless I think the only person who could do that was would be the modern teenager who seems to be able to watch TV look at their phone, yeah. you know, watch TikTok videos yeah. and, and listen to music yeah. all, differently, all at the same time. Yeah, and maybe read a book <laughs> yeah. while they're watching all television. At the same time. That's right, that's right. Okay, so I want to go back because there might be some new listeners to this podcast and I know we've spoken about this before, but talk to me how you came to writing. You know, I know that you're a journalist in London. Yeah. That's right, isn't I started, it? Uh, well, I started my journalistic career in, in Australia at the at Fairfax, where yes. with the lovely Geraldine Brooks was a cadet <gasps> in the same. And do you intake. know she's in town shortly? I know. And do you, you know, know she's coming into this very office shortly? And do you know that we've worked out our schedules, <gasps> and we chase each other all around the country. And even when she's in my local bookstore, I am appearing at a different bookstore oh, elsewhere. Oh, you're joking. You're not yeah. going to see each other. And, and, well, this, we're trying to work out how we can see each other. Mm. She's but, coming in here. I can't wait. Yeah. I'm, it's funny. Uh, I've just, uh, I'm in the process of reading Horse now mm, and absolutely so loving it. Yeah. Um, but um, I started in journalism uh, at the age of 17 and then moved to London mm-hmm. uh, and worked on Fleet Street for close to a decade. Mm-hmm. Then I became a ghostwriter mm-hmm. of uh, autobiographies for mm-hmm. The Great and the Good. Mm-hmm. Uh, I did 15 autobiographies for, from everyone from... And so, yeah, name some. Oh, I can name a few otherwise. Jerry Halliwell. Jerry Halliwell and Lulu and um, Tony Bullimore and Dennis Thatcher um, God, that would have been stimulating. And um, <laughs> and Rolf Harris for my sins. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is he uh, in jail? No, no, he's out now. He's out, he's out now. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, and How did you get into the head of Dennis Thatcher? Well, that was it. Was it was more? Okay. <laughs> I think it would have been easier to get into the head of Jerry Hallow. No, it's funny. Dennis actually was just a man of his generation. You was know, he? he was he he. You know, he was you know right wing. He was xenophobic. Um, he was, uh, you know, he, but he was very funny in that. He, he loved his rugby. I mean, even Carol, I mean, because Carol Thatcher was helping me on the project. That's Margaret Thatcher's daughter. daughter. Yes. And uh, even Carol used to joke about that, you know, her mother married Dennis because her mother had been told she would never be given a safe seat to win unless she was married wow. and had children. It's very much the Julia Gillard sort of scenario. and wow. And so... Margaret married a man many years her senior, and according to according to Carol, that you know basically he rolled over one night, sneezed, she got pregnant with twins, so that was it. She didn't have to sleep with him again. <laughs> <laughs> and Carol tells that. Story. Carol tells that story, yeah. yeah. And so it's very much she, Margaret ticked all the boxes, and Dennis was quite happy to. Um, but he was incredibly supportive of, but to to yeah. to be the man in the background that just loved his refereed rugby and and you know and she did cry on his shoulder. I mean, we we only ever saw her as the Iron Lady, but yeah. um, this it was one of the nicest reviews about um, about that book about the Dennis Thatcher. It was Carol's biography of her father that I helped write, and was it was called uh, Below the Parapet. And it was um, one of the review reviews, and the Sunday Times called it the best political memoir since Alan Clark's diaries, and oh, wow. and it was because it gave great sort of insight of behind the scenes of what what Margaret Thatcher was really like. Yeah, and also I guess you know with any memoir, um, it's about the integrity and the honesty that the 
story. Yeah, and yeah. I think Margaret did not want mm. Dennis to do the book or Carol to do the book, and Margaret, I, I didn't have much to do with her during during every time she did meet me. Um, she made it clear that she didn't like me or want me and it was, you know, she didn't want to see the book come out but the book got tremendously well received. And, um, and, and she, she would have read it. Yeah, yeah, and she and she didn't come out of it badly at all, yeah. you know, um, you know, because he was in love with her, for, you know, mm. for, for there's no doubt and it comes through that he was in love with her. Mm. Often I speak to people, readers, not people that work in the industry, and if I talk to them about ghostwriting or if I, you know, there's a book that I've seen that's it's usually in the non-fiction sphere and I'll say, oh, a friend of mine wrote that, they're often surprised and they think that there's no value in a story if it hasn't been written by the person that was meant to write the story or who they think wrote the story. Well, see, that's crazy to it me. It is. I agree. Yeah. Yeah. Um, because, you know... There are many people that have had remarkable lives, but why, and stories. Should we, why should we expect them to be able to write? Yes. I mean, writing is a skill. Mm. And and how disappointing would it be if you picked up a book by someone you had admired your entire life, mm. but because they're not a writer, the book just doesn't give you any insight into them at all. I mean, it's... Mm. You've just articulated that so perfectly. Yeah. I um, Many years ago, I came across this beautiful person called Majok Tulba, a Sudanese refugee. I might have spoken to you about him over the years. Anyway, he ended up having two books published, fiction books published with Penguin Random House, Ben Ball actually at the time. And he spent many, many years in a refugee camp and he doesn't know how long it was because he lost track of time. He was a young boy and he said... He remembers because the Sudanese, the South Sudanese in particular, were orators. You know, they told a lot of story, but it was it was told story. And he remembers the first time in a refugee camp that he saw one of the workers had a book. And he remembers picking it up. I just love this story so much. He remembers picking it up and just wondering how what got into your head got into a book and what he imagined was some kind of device where you plug something (laughs) up here because he was a young boy and then when you tell the story in your imagination or say it out loud, it becomes the book. Don't you love that? Isn't that funny? And and, and to a degree it's... The, the advice I gave to all the people that I, I used to write with was imagine you're just telling me a story mm. where we're sitting in a bar or on a, whatever and you never met me before. But if you're going to tell me a story about your life, you're not going to tell me the boring bits. Mm. You're going to tell me the bits will make me laugh and the books mm. will make me cry and, and, the, and the bits that, you know, those. And so that's all you're doing. You're just, you know, you're just whatever. If you think it, you mm. say it. Mm. And we put that on the page. And all I will do is I will craft it in your voice and bring your story out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. 
From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need a fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Did you enjoy doing that kind of work? I I did. It taught me a tremendous amount about writing and about Mm. capturing voice because everyone I wrote for Mm. uh, had a unique voice. And if I did my job properly... People that had known them their entire lives would not recognise my fingerprints on that book. It would look mm. and sound exactly like mm. the person I was writing for. It taught me a lot. And honestly, you know, Gerald, I, I firmly thought when I when I sat down to write a novel that, and, I've, and I've, now I've told you this before, that, you know, if I was lucky I'd get it published and my mother would buy eight of the 12 copies that sold and I would probably continue as a ghostwriter for the rest of my career because that was paying the bills. And so I never, you know, as much as I dreamed of writing, being a writer my entire life, I didn't think that I would get there and I thought ghostwriting was the next best thing. Mm. You'll be annoyed at me, but I do want to, I love this story so much. Tell me the story about, because you told me this once we were travelling, we were touring, and you told me the story about how you sent a book to your mother and you (laughs) rang to ask, tell me that story because I love that story. so, And I've told it many, many times. Yeah, this is when my, my, you know, that first first novel got sold on a part manuscript uh, into, in the space of three hours into about 20 languages. Mm. Wow. and, uh, And so when I, it was only on 117 pages. So when I finished it and the first advanced reading copy arrived, I sent it to my mum. Who's a reader? Who was a big reader? Yeah, big big reader. And uh, and I waited and I waited and I heard nothing. And about weeks passed, and I finally thought, oh, she's got to hate it. Why wouldn't she? You know. And I, I rang her. I said, Mum, did you get a chance to read that book I sent you? The one with my name in huge type on the front cover. And she said, Oh dear, I had three library books to get through. <laughs> did you want me to read your one first? And I said, I said, No, Mum. Honestly, when you when you get to it, just. When you get to it, yeah. <laughs> and then um, and then a few weeks later, uh, I, again I heard nothing. I phoned her, and I said, "Mum, did you did you finally finish that book?" I did. Well, well, what did you think? It took me a while to get into, but then I did. I wanted to put that on my website <laughs> underneath the Washington Post review and the Sunday Times review. Author's mother. It took yeah, me a while to get good. into, but then I did. But then the funniest line I was got to finish a little bit was that. Um, uh, I then she then said, "What are you going to do now?" And I said, "Well, well, Mum, this has been published into you know more than twenty languages, and uh, yeah, um, they want me to write another one. Or do you think that's wise, dear? <laughs> Perhaps you should rest on your laurels." <laughs> <laughs> and how many books did she read in the end of your um, fiction? Oh, Mum's still alive, although sadly she's got dementia, so she's not re- she hasn't read the, the last few. But I think um, she probably got to read 10 or 12, and she was quite funny. I mean, it, it became a running joke. It's like I wrote a book called um, Bleed for Me, which does, you know, it was, a, yes, it was partly a reaction to Peter Temple once saying, and when asked if there's anything that is too much... If, if there's a bridge too far for a crime writer, if there's material that is just too dark. And he said that we could boil a baby and eat the baby with truffles and that would be fine, but heaven help you if you harmed a family pet. 
And you know how I feel about I know, this. I know exactly how you feel about this, Cheryl. And so there was a book where a, a particularly horrible family pet died in a horrible way. I think Alec Crisp never forgave you. I Yeah, well, my mother didn't forgive me. I mean, I've had death threats over that, see, but, but oh, wow. uh, I, had my, I had my mother phone me up <laughs> saying, you have to change it, Michael, you have to change it. It's that dreadful scene with the dog. She said, I spent the entire book thinking the cat was going to be next. <laughs> And was she an animal lover, your mother? Yes. 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 Okay. Because my dog features in one of the books, doesn't he? Yeah, but does not get harmed in any way. In any way, John Brown. Um, And a lot of the readers know that. And when they read your book, they often send me a note to say that John Brown was in the book. Do you know he's 16 this year? Wow. Still going strong, though. He is blind and deaf, though. Mm. Anyway, we're not going to talk about dogs. Uh, So... One of the things that I think that comes from you um, is a generosity. We were only talking about this earlier, actually, in the office. We're talking about authors that have a capacity to be generous to other authors. And it's one of my fondest memories of you, actually. I've got many, but that was when we were touring back then. And you said to me once, and it was a real um, light bulb moment for me, but you said to me, Cheryl, at events, you should pair me with an unknown writer so mm. I can give them the stage. Mm. Yeah, wow. Talk to me about that. Yeah, well, I think it's um, – yeah. I was very fortunate when I when – I, even though I had that sort of incredible start, that first novel like, sold over a million copies around the world, but the one place it didn't actually do very well was home in Australia. Mm. And mm. Um, But I remember when I first appeared on stage with uh, Peter Temple mm. who – made the most generous of comments in front of this audience saying like he said that my first novel was the finest debut novel he'd read in a decade. It's very good. Which I thought, wow, you know, and um, that generosity was important. And it's funny. And, look, I, I've done events back in the early days. I remember doing an event at the National Library with Matthew Riley. And now Matt Riley was a much bigger name than I was. And, um, and everyone in the audience had come to see Matt. You know, but, you know, again, you know, I benefited from the fact that there were people there and I've met some of those people since saying, we met you that night, we read your book because of that, mm-hmm. we've read everyone since. And so, you know, it's hard enough in this in this sort of game to launch a new writer. It's why one of my, you know, great irritants I have at the moment is that long dead writers keep releasing books, which I just think, mm-hmm. hey, there's too many good new writers. Mm-hmm. Why do we have to keep releasing books? Mm-hmm by Conan Doyle and Agatha Christie and, you know, um, surely it's time, you know, they've written their their body of work. Mm. You don't need to have ghostwriters producing more. Mm. Uh, and I, I want to to help that next generation of writers to, to emerge. There certainly is a new generation of writers and we talk about that a lot here at Better Reading. Um, there is a real push uh, for crime and you're one of the early... Because... As a young bookseller, when I was working on the shop floor many, many years ago, pretty much crime was either American or English. That's Mm. just the way it was. And I loved it, you know. Um, And then I guess I discovered you, maybe maybe Peter Temple. Who came first? Well, well, Peter Temple came first. And I guess before me, I mean, I feel as though the, the pioneers were people like Peter Corris. Peter Corris. I never, um, yeah, so that never quite worked for me. uh, Morel Day and Gabriel Lord. I mean, there were mm. there there were writers there, and I and I think I've, I'm that next. You know, I, mm. I, I 
that next generation. And I think, you know, Australian crime writing, which is, you know, is going through an absolute sort of golden... It's exploded, uh, hasn't it? ...era yeah. at the moment. And a lot, I mean, a lot of the credit has to do, um, has to go to Jane Harper mm. because, you know, I think I've mentioned to you once before, it was um, 10, 10 or 15 years ago I was told by an international publisher that they would like me to... Sit, they would be happy for me to set a book anywhere in the world other than Australia. Yeah, wow. Because no Australian crime crime novel had ever had huge international success. And that was true at the time. It was, and I just... Yeah. But I said to that person yeah. at the time, until one is successful. Yes. And Jane Harper and The Dry was that novel, and it's just opened up so many doors mm. around the world. Um for so many Australian writers, because as much as we're reading, and also Australians themselves, you know, have discovered, you're right, back, you know, 20, 30 years ago, they were reading American and British crime mm -hmm. novels, and I, mm -hmm. I think there was a cultural cringe factor that we didn't think the Australians did it as well, mm -hmm. whereas now Australian readers realise that mm -hmm. we do it better. Mm -hmm. And we get to read stories that are set here. And I know my stories aren't set in Australia, mm -hmm. but that's because I lived in the UK for mm -hmm. a dozen years and it's where I started my publishing career. But we have some brilliant, brilliant Australian crime mm -hmm. writers now. Oh, don't we just? But it's interesting. Um, I do an article in the um, the Australian every week um, and, uh, I, you know, pluck out four or five, six books a week. And it's not a review as such. It's just pretty much, you know, a summary of what the book is, a pricey, we like to call it. But I've been getting some not so lovely emails <laughs> from men saying that I've got a female author slant. Oh, it's thought, about time. <laughs> not for you, but I'm just saying. Yeah, that, but you know, do you know, I, it was a shock when I got the first one because I don't, I've never noticed gender when I'm reading. Yeah, it, it's interesting, isn't it? Because whereas I've, I've always been surprised because it's something I didn't notice for years, but until someone actually crunched yeah. the numbers in terms of yes. books reviewed and reviewers in mm -hmm. terms of how it's slanted, skewed towards men in terms of male authors get their books more reviewed, mm. male critics get more reviews published. And they used to joke with the, you know, with the Ned Kelly Awards, which has changed dramatically over mm. the last 10, 15 years. But at one point, then more people had called Peter had won a Ned Kelly Award than women had won a Ned Kelly mm. Award. And, I remember <laughs> that. I remember there was an know, article and, about um, that. Yeah. yeah, and which has changed dramatically. And, yeah. you know, quite frankly... You know, I, I I don't mind if it's if it's it mm. goes the other way for a while because I tell you what, for for a long long while there it was slanted towards male writers mm -hmm. and male critics. So if it goes the other way, well and good. I've got a theory that's completely unfounded, but I'll tell you anyway. <laughs> is that I think this is my second unfounded theory today in this podcast. But I think for a long time we had male gatekeepers as reviewers, right? And what was happening is. It was one more literary, and two, um, you know, it wasn't general fiction, and three, it really wasn't aimed at women. And then I think when social media hit and platforms like ours came up, then readers could talk, tell you directly what they wanted to read. They were they they actively, they, you know, I mean, mm. we're doing it this afternoon. We're we're doing a segment called "What Are You Reading," and so therefore you are getting that response firsthand. There's no longer a gatekeeper, and you know, largely always it's been a female audience. But I will tell you this, Michael: almost every week in "What Are You Reading," you still come up. <laughs> there you go. Uh, You've survived. You've survived. survived that wall. <laughs> but no, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, there are there are there are male 
readers out there that, w- that will say that they will never read a, a, yeah. a book written by a woman, which is just ridiculous. It just, you know, I, it really it, had never crossed my it, mind. It, it, it's just crazy. And yet, you know, you've also got a situation where there's no doubt if you look at my books over the last, particularly over the last probably five or six books, dominated by really strong female characters because, you know, it's one of those things that women are the great readers of fiction, mm. women are the great readers of crime fiction, and mm. they want to read strong, dynamic, active female characters. And um, and when you look at the, the TV shows that are, and the books that are, the, when they look at the really huge books like Gone Girl and Girl on a Train, again, very strong female mm. characters, Big Little Lies, very strong female mm. characters. In my writing, you know, I'm, I'm writing strong, you know, strong female characters in all, I mean, I have been guilty of writing books where the women, only women in the books have tended to be victims or or bit players. Uh, not many, but one of the two of my early books. But mm. now I think women dominate my character list. Mm. Mm. Well, speak, that's a segue. Lying Beside You. Now, talk to me about the development of t- these two well, new characters. They're, it's book number three, so they're not that new. But when I went back and I read The Suspect, I kind of missed... Um, it's James O'Loughlin, isn't it? Joe. Joe O'Loughlin. I kind of missed Joe, right? And I did wonder back then if you missed Joe. Yeah, look, I, I do, but I, I created when I, I never intended to write a series with Joe. And when I gave him early onset Parkinson in mm. in that first novel, um, in a sense, I'd created a use by date, mm. you know. And and did you do that knowingly? Well, I, I did it knowingly. I, I love the tragic irony of someone with a brilliant mind mm. having a crumbling body, but. I honestly, Cheryl, thought I'd get one novel. Mm. You know, I mean, if I thought I was going to write nine novels with that character, I probably wouldn't have given him Parkinson's, you know. Mm. You know mm. um, but at the time I thought I might get mm. one novel here and I never intended to write a series. I thought it was going to be a standalone. It was just it was so successful and everyone wanted to see more of Joe. He's such a lovable character. And the thing is, I aged him in real time and the disease got progressively worse and by the time I got to The Other Wife... You know, I thought that was that was going to be the end of Joe. But I've always kept it open and now that the TV series is kicked off in the UK, there is scope there potentially in a book or two maybe to bring to bring Joe back and mm. uh, and see where he is. So, and you'd like to do that? Yeah. Yeah, I think I would. And also I left it in such a way that his daughter, who was eight in that first novel, mm. and in the last novel she was at university studying to be a psychologist, and so I've left it open that Charlie could become a major character mm. in in some future novel. So, yeah, you know, I can see myself bringing him back. Yeah, okay. Okay, Lying Beside You, a little bit of a pricey because we're almost out of time. Oh, you want me to do a pricey? Yeah, of course I <laughs> Okay, do. this is... Um, you wrote the book, remember? It, it picks up the story <laughs> of uh, Cyrus Haven, who's a forensic psychologist who suffered a tragedy when he was 13 years old where his parents and twin sisters were murdered by his schizophrenic older brother Elias mm-hmm. and Elias has spent 20 years in Rampton's um, psychiatric hospital and is now applying to be released mm-hmm. and Cyrus has to live and forgive really and, and, and come to terms with the fact that this man that destroyed his childhood, his only flesh and blood mm-hmm. now, wants to come home and so that's one integral part of the story. And the other is that you know, Cyrus is sharing his house with Evie Cormack, the damaged young girl that um, was discovered hiding in a secret room where a man had been tortured to death and um, who has 
this uncanny ability to tell when people are lying. Um, she she's, she's living with Cyrus great now. Character. Yeah, and she's fascinating to mm. to write. I love writing Eve. She's the most fascinating character mm. I've ever written. So she's living, um, sharing a house with Cyrus, um, trying to get her life back in order. There is a crime at the heart of the story. There's a mystery mm. to be solved, uh, as well as having this in the background this sinister figure of Elias coming back into their lives. Can he be trusted? Is he is he right to be released? Um, no. Do you know, um, I don't have a great empathy for um, teenage angst. You know, I really don't. And I, just because I'm old and, you know. <laughs> You've forgotten what it's like to be a teenager, I know. I do. And I just, sometimes I look at, you know, TV shows or books, oh, no, I don't have time. I just don't have time. Uh, I have not much interest either. Um, but I like Evie and I don't know why that is. She's got a wisdom about her that's it's yeah. very different to any I mean, character I, I've seen. I like it because she's she's blunt and incredibly mm. honest, and it's interesting because, as you know, you know you've read a lot of uh, crime novels, and you know when you create a character, you can tell when someone's lying. You're on track mm. to write the shortest crime novel in history, mm. and so the only way I can make a character like Evie work in this setting is to make her a, a compulsive liar. So even though she can tell when others are lying, she cannot lie straight in bed, which means nobody believes her. Mm. And she is self-destructive and she is damaged. And But there's a good reason for that when you, when you know what she's been through. And I think that's what makes her interesting. So without getting you into trouble, I guess one of the reasons why I think that Evie's believable to me is because she's uh, authentic, I believe her. And you have three teen. Well, they're not no longer teenagers, but no I, longer teenagers. I went through it. Yes, you went through it. Do you draw on that? Those oh, experiences? yes, definitely. Yeah, of course. And even even back in the days of um, with the Joe Lachlan novels, we were talking about you know his daughter Charlie. I mean, yeah. so many of the words that came out of Charlie's mouth, so many of the arguments yeah. that she has with her dad, so many of her clever sort of comebacks and quips came from my own. Children, you lift it, and I just, I yeah, I lift, I steal all the time from them, mm. and um, and no, definitely. Well, and that's what keeps it real, right? Yeah, yeah. Michael Robotham, thank you so much for your time. Always, always a pleasure. Thanks, Cheryl. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere. Or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, Join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.